Welcome to the Addiction Psychologist Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Addiction Psychology. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Noel Vest join us. Noel is a postdoctoral fellow working with Dr. Keith Humphreys at Stanford University's School of Medicine. His research focuses on the intersection of mental health, substance use disorders, poverty, social justice, and addiction recovery, as well as pain and prison reentry. As a formerly incarcerated scholar, he is a strong advocate for social justice issues and public policy concerning prison reentry. He's going to tell us a little bit about his story and then discuss his experience how these experiences have influenced his research and his career trajectory. And it's kind of two parts here. One is going to be a discussion around policy work to ensure that individuals with lived experience have an opportunity for continued education. And the other is research uh, that he's doing trying to enhance uh, recovery for those who are already in college uh, in the form of collegiate recovery programs. And for those who are unfamiliar with collegiate recovery, these are basically communities that live on college campuses uh, where they're trying to ensure a pathway for individuals with uh, lived experience in recovery have an opportunity to get into education and feel supported throughout, as well as educated individ or individuals who are seeking higher education have an opportunity uh, to feel supported as they seek recovery while in school. So he's going to talk about his work in this area, and we're really excited to have him join us today. All right. Well, welcome, Noel Vest, to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's really, really just uh, great to be here. Awesome. We're, we're really excited to, to talk to you about um, the research and, and you know, how you got into this. Um, I wonder if you could start a little bit by, by telling us um, a little bit about your training. Sure. Yeah. So um, about 10 years ago, I decided that I was going to uh, go back to school with really the, the main goal of wanting to be a drug and alcohol counselor. I I'd, um, you know, had some issues and, and, and really just kind of wanted to uh, to, to see if I could do it, I guess, more than anything. And so uh, I, I entered into community college um, in a little town called uh, Pasco, Washington, Columbia Basin College, and, and, and just kind of put my hat in the ring and um, really, you know, I, I think I invested a lot into, into, the, um, uh, into, the, into my academics. I, I tried to do as well as I could. I really wanted to, to, to kind of prove myself, I guess, more than anything. And so um, I, I, I did really well, uh, started to get some internships and started to, to, to do some work in uh, substance use disorder uh, counseling. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, I was, I was really learning a lot in the classroom that I was able to kind of take with me and so I realized actually fairly quickly um, when, when I was working with people that, you know, I wasn't the greatest of, of, of substance use disorder counselors. I, I didn't really, for some people, the motivational interviewing thing really clicks and they, they have this really great skill set and they're able to do that. And for some reason, it just never really clicked with me. And I think that, you know, there are some biases that I took into it based a little bit on my own history that I really wasn't able to overcome uh, in, in the counseling room and in, in the group room. And so, you know, luckily at the same time, I was also kind of being introduced to new things. I had, I had moved on from the, the community college into a four-year uh, school, um, uh, Washington State University. It was kind of like a, a, a sub- um, or, or a satellite campus that they had uh, in the community that I was in. And so I was kind of at the same time being introduced to some psychological concepts and I was inter introduced to um, some, some other really cool research that I had never really been introduced to before. And then I, I took this class uh, that was a, a, about, you know, be, becoming involved in a personality lab and the instructor was Dr. Sarah Trigresser. And really once I got involved in that, I really never looked back. I kind of caught the bug of, of being a researcher and um, really, really in, enjoyed it. Um, I loved the, the statistical um, modeling uh, as I kind of moved along in that and found that it was really a skill set that, that I was, my brain was much more in tune to than, than mm -hmm. probably working one-on-one -on -one with people. And so um, I, I put together a, a decent application for, for graduate school. I applied to a different couple of different schools at the time, uh, University of Washington and then Washington State, and was really just kind of lucky enough to, to get into to Washington State. And, um, uh, you know, along the way, uh, 
you know, worked with some just incredible, incredible, incredible researchers and um, was able to, to get my PhD last year. And then now just kind of starting this, this postdoc here at, at Stanford. Um, and, you know, like I say, I think that uh, it's really just been a, a great opportunity because, um, you know, I've had some, some great mentors along the way. And, and then also I've been able to, um, you know, just learn uh, and um, not only just from the from from the academic side of things, but you know, kind of taking that knowledge that I had as a substance use disorder counselor, and then then some other uh, experiences in into the research that I do, and, and it's just been a you know, like I say, a really uh, a really good experience. That's awesome. That's awesome. Shout out community college, by the way. So I'm so happy to hear somebody come on the show who has a very similar backstory in some ways to myself, right? Like I, I went and got my learn on at a community college. That's some of the best education I ever had, by the way. For anybody out there thinking about a junior college, check it out. Some of the best props that you'll ever see are there. Um, and so it sounds like you kind of look, took a little bit of the road less taken here um, as, a, as it relates to kind of your trajectory through academics. Uh, but you also kind of took like an interesting path to get where you are uh, personally. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, I'd I love to. Um, and you're, yeah, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think that uh, while I have a, a, you know, a PhD in experimental uh, psychology, I also have a, a, a PhD in, in uh, street knowledge uh, as well, or, or lived experience as well, right? I, I, so, you know, from basically when, when I was 18 until, you know, my, early, my, my late 20s, um, I, uh, really just kind of used drugs and alcohol as, I mean, I would say in kind of a, a normal way until I turned 22, 23 years old, uh, I went through a, uh, a breakup with a, a girlfriend that I had had for, for quite some time. And um, that kind of circumstance was just uh, a catalyst for um, really this normal use of drugs and alcohol that really turned into a, kind of an abnormal use of, of drugs and alcohol. And um, that downward spiral of addiction that you kind of hear that, that you know, we hear really, really common uh, was, was, you know, some a lived experience that, that I had in, in reality. And so um, along with that, uh, you know, some, some decisions that, that I made um, that, you know, were probably looking back on it, not probably the, the best decisions that I could have made at the time. Um, and, and so that downward spiral really kind of landed me in a, in a place that was, um, you know, very, very low and, um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I found myself kind of in this, this CD subculture of, of drug use where, you know, committing crimes and doing identity theft and, and stuff like that was really just kind of the norm of that, of that subculture. And so that that resulted in in quite a few arrests um and ultimately ended up in a uh, a seven-year prison sentence uh in the nevada department of corrections and so from 2002 uh to 2009 uh, i was i was in the nevada department of corrections I, I think that you know luckily and and i'll talk a little bit more about this but uh you know luckily i was i was at a, a prison that had um, a couple of really just incredible programs. So they had AA, they had uh, people that came in and offered uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which was a lifesaver, at least for me at that time. And then they also had a college and prison program, which uh, for me, again, was, you know, for me, it was a second chance, right? I, I had graduated high school, but I was really never a, a, a good student at all. I think I had like a 1.8 GPA when I graduated. And so for me, it was kind of a second chance for a lot of people, individuals in prison. Uh, it was really a first chance. And, and so I considered myself really, really lucky to be at a, a prison at the time because there weren't very many that had a, a college and prison program. This one was through the, the College of Southern Nevada. Uh, and it, it really allowed me to kind of fortify some study habits that I was able to take with me uh, when I got out and got into to, to the community college. And so, um, you know, like I say, I think that uh, it's it's uh, it's a very much so um, a you know th this lived experience that I have. It really plays into a lot of the the research that I do today. And it and you know it may not be exactly what I. Uh, study, but you know everything that I do is really kind of informed uh, through that perspective, through that lens uh, of you know both sufferer, of healer, of you know a person in prison, uh, and I think that it 
you know, I think you kind of hit it on the head and that, you know, it just kind of gives me this unique perspective that, um, you know, that, that we don't see quite often. And I, you know, hope, hope that changes, but we don't see very often uh, in higher ed and academia and in research in, in general. And, um, and so, yeah, I, it's, a, it, it's been a, a great experience, but, you know, also a, a very uh, a, a long uh, road, like everyone knows, to, to, to this career in higher education or high career in research. No, I hear, I hear you completely, and I'm, I'm so glad um, to have you on the show because I think it's really important for our listeners, but also just the academia and research and, and policymakers out there to, to really hear that, um, that these lived experiences, I think, really bring important, unique perspectives to the work in ways that allow us to really push things forward. Uh, Personally, I believe this, and, 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 and perhaps I'm biased, because I lived um, uh, a crazy youth as well, right? Like when I was, so I used to skateboard in competition from 18 to 24, so I used to throw myself on stairs for a living. Um, and there's just mayhem that's going on there, right? Like I had police contact all over the place, right? And by the time I was like 24, I had been incarcerated, at least in, in county, which is different than the Department of Corrections, for those who don't know. County is like a one-year sentence or less, um, I was in Phoenix, Arizona at the time, so I was in the tent city, famously uh, associated with Sheriff Joe Arpaio, so it was horrible. Um, and that stuff just gets in the way when you try to show up and show out in academia, right? Those are boat anchors, right? But really what I think they are is they're, um, I think they're really things that should be valued more than they are. Um, and so I really appreciate you walking us through a little bit about that background, because I really do believe it gives you a unique vantage point by which to do your work and by which to deliver uh, for the people that you're trying to make a difference for, uh, whether that be, uh, I know you've done some work with policy in the state house, whether that be on a paper uh, for a specific journal, right, or even just uh, showing up in a meeting and making sure that those people who are talking about whatever they're talking about in some room at Stanford, right, like hear from some people who are lived this, Right, and so I really want to just thank you for being just 100 and just doing it. And so, so thank you for that. And so I was wondering if you could um, talk to us a little bit about um, some of your research and what, what is your research program um, broadly and kind of like how does that get informed by some of this stuff? Yeah, I think my, my research is almost as diverse as my background, really, at this point. You know, I, I think if someone looked at my publication record, they would say, man, this guy's kind of all over the place. And it really has been. I, you know, I worked with um, uh, Dr. Sarah Tregresser at, at uh, Washington State University uh, in undergrad and then in graduate school. And, you know, she's an expert on borderline personality disorder, which you know, pseudo makes me an expert uh, on, on borderline personality disorder. So mm -hmm. a lot of my work early on was uh, really kind of, and, and you know, the way that I kind of looked at it at the time was that it, it was really just kind of understanding um, kind of concepts, right? So understanding how, you know, in this case, borderline personality disorder, but um, really understanding how mental health issues and substance use disorder really kind of overlap in a way that uh, that in a way that was very very important and understanding that overlap and how how to kind of pick it apart with using statistical modeling so looking at you know maybe underlying factors that may be kind of involved in both disorders and if we could get to the bottom of that that may be more informative of 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 the uh, for for treating both disorders and so that really kind of gave me this perspective. Um, that, that I think, again, I've kind of taken with me because I think that there's so many things that are intertwined. It's not just the, it's not just mental health, uh, that, that's intertwined. It's, you know, mental health and poverty and, um, you know, mm. and, and substance use disorder. And, and I don't think it's really possible to pick those things uh, apart. And so understanding that all of these things are, are kind of influencing one another. And if you're going to be doing some research on them, uh, you really need to understand, you know, that, that that that's the case and that you really uh if you're like i say if you're going to be doing research uh, understanding how that 
those those intricacies or those influences are 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 taking place is, is really important. And so, um, I, you know, I could never say enough about the training that I got from uh, Dr. Tregressor and, and all of my friends at, at Washington State. It was really um, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, I think that uh, additionally, understanding that really kind of made me, I, I hope, made me an attractive candidate as a um, as a as a postdoc, I, I think that you know I I spread I think I applied for 29 uh, or no maybe it was 19 different postdoc uh, positions and um, you know Stanford was one of them but I I I, I you guys had Seema and um, uh, Susan on I I definitely talked with them quite a bit about the research that they were doing too as I was kind of looking for postdocs and so um, you know again consider myself to be very very lucky here in in working with. With to, to get a position here working with uh, Keith Humphreys, but really I've just taken the knowledge that I gained at Washington State and, and kind of applied it here in, in, in some different contexts. So I've been working with a couple of uh, researchers at the VA here. So I, I kind of made a name for myself with my dissertation using late longitudinal latent class analysis. And so uh, the VA has just incredible, very robust, informative data sets that, that they collect. And so um, I have a couple of, uh, working on a couple of publications with with them. Um, I've always been interested in prison reentry. I think that in order to break into that area of research, it's much more of a marathon than it is a, a sprint um, that, that, you know, that I'm kind of doing right now, this publish or perish mode. Um, and uh, so, so that's a lot of the research that I've kind of done, what I'm focusing on my energy on right now, um, specifically is collegiate recovery programming. So I just put in a uh, KL1 uh, early investigator award um, uh, through the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Uh, I'm assuming that, that most people on the podcast will understand kind of what that is. But basically, it's an early investigator award to kind of get your, your career started. And so um, I, I put it in basically to look specifically at collegiate recovery program. You know, we've had one NIH funded study on collegiate recovery programs, and it was done over seven years ago. And so I think that it's just a really um, maybe an under underserved at least from the in the research world, uh, an underserved uh, area of, of of investigation, and then obviously working with Keith Humphreys here, who has really made a name for himself in policy, and then also in in uh, research on AA and other mutual help groups. Just having that, you know, mentorship, uh, the ability to have him as a mentor uh, in this area, I think is, you know, it, it kind of. I'm hoping that it, it really kind of sets me apart and uh, allows me to to really do a really great job in, in, in examining collegiate recovery as we, as we kind of move forward. Because, you know, I think that it's so important. We talk mm -hmm. about collegiate recovering, recovery programs. Um, we're really talking, to me, we're talking about a criminal justice intervention because you're taking someone at a point that, you know, maybe they are either coming out of prison or maybe they're, you know, at a point where they've gotten arrested for the first time. Uh, but either way, you're taking them and removing them from a potential prison or, or county jail sentence. Uh, and you're ideally, you know, getting them either into treatment or, you know, providing that safe haven uh, for someone coming out of prison. And you're able to provide these services uh, to kind of create both things, right? A, a pathway for um, uh, higher earnings potential. And then you're also offering uh, a, a way for individuals to uh, ha have these resources as they as they would would potentially need them, and and so I think it's such a, I think it gets overlooked as a criminal justice intervention, but I I think it's honestly saving the criminal justice system millions and millions of dollars a year, and and not really getting credit for it. Yeah, you really you really have had a very diverse uh, research history, um, looking at all kinds of different stuff. I'm really interested in this collegiate recovery program, and um, I'm wondering if you could um, unpack that a little bit more. Tell us a little bit about, about what what it might look like um, typically, um, and, and you know if you know anything about the efficacy. I mean, I guess you kind of went through something sort of like this, but it, but maybe it's a little bit different. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so and I'll give you a couple of different perspectives, really. So I, I started a collegiate recovery program with a friend of mine, John Wallace, at Washington State while I was there. So I kind of have that perspective of it. 
Um, I have, I mean, I, I just did a, a scoping review on collegiate recovery program. So I, I understand the research pretty well on it. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've attended the, the ARHE uh, Association for Recovery and Higher Education Conference uh, for the last couple of years and, and have gotten an idea of, you know, kind of some of the more robust programs. I think that there are um, flagship programs, for lack of a better word, right? So uh, we all, you know, in, in the kind of the collegiate recovery world, we definitely know that um, uh, the, the program at Texas Tech is just, you know, really very robust. I think they work off of a, a fairly good, good-sized um, uh, philanthropic donation that, that they uh, have an endowment that they work from. And it's very well funded, and uh, they've, they've, they've really done a great job to improve the program kind of year after year. And and so that's kind of the, the flagship program. They have on-campus housing. Um, they have uh, like seminars. And, and again, I, I've never actually been to Texas Tech to see it. Uh, this is all like secondhand knowledge. But, but from what I understand from um, the, the people that run it there, it's, it, it is very robust and, and uh, very, um, uh, it, it's been very successful. And you know, along with them, uh, Rutgers has been a, a program. Uh, that is, um, you know, very, very robust. And then Augsburg University, I think those are when people think of the three kind of robust programs, those are the ones that have been around the longest and probably have the, the most um, knowledge, I guess, uh, around them. But there, there are great programs around the country. The very first one was actually a Brown uh, in 1977. Mm-hmm. I know that it's kind of gone up and down, at least in the literature, it looks like it's kind of, uh, you know, had some some years of great success, and then other years where, it's, you know, students yeah. have kind of dwindled out and um and and so but but along with them there's you know a really great program i think at at penn state uh here in california university of southern uh university of california santa barbara i think that uh, angie bryan down there does a really good job uh penn state university of denver has a really good good program kenesaw state has a really uh good program there's and the thing that i would i would i have probably learned the most is that they're all so variable in what they offer. And I, and I, I hope with this, with this K award that that's the first and foremost thing that I want to, to try and capture is this extreme variability between programs. And, and I I think understanding like, what is it that's kind of evidence-based about them? Right. So I know that, that, you know, along with, um, you know, mutual help meetings, a lot of times they, they have mutual help meetings, but is it, is it that, 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 is it that kind of evidence based intervention that's that's helping is it the drop-in center that's that's kind of helping uh or or providing the best and we really we just don't know at this at this point and so i'm really hoping to be able to to answer some of those questions as we uh as we kind of move forward in this area that's super interesting so just to make sure i understand it like you do and that that our listeners are perhaps unfamiliar with collegiate recovery um, understand a little bit so at at universities, just like, is it like a physical place that they can go to, or is it more a programmatic kind of like how AA is where they just kind of like fill in empty spaces and put together like a pamphlet and people just kind of show up or, or I understand there's a lot of variability, but if you had to like, just take like the mean, what are we talking about? It's a great question. And it's a simple maybe answer. That's an, yes, maybe that's right, a, maybe that's an empirical <laughs> question. That sounds like an empirical <laughs> question. Shout, by the way, Nida, you should fund that KO1 if you're yeah. listening. So that we could figure that out, um, but but it Absolutely. sounds like all of the above, right? Right. And so yes, it, definitely. And and so I think that the the programs that are most successful, uh, they do have a drop in. I mean that that seems to be the one thing that that uh, is kind of across the board. Once a program kind of gets a drop in center, like a a, a place like a where they can, spot, it's physical spot, right? Someone on site all, all the time. They hold their meetings there. I mean that that's the 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 kind of the once pe- once a program kind of gets over that barrier, it seems to me that that everything else just kind of falls in, in into place. And so the two places that I've been at, though, I, I mean, I can talk about kind of my own personal experience at Washington yeah. State University. You know, we were just able to start. A, and this is I see this happen quite often is that you'll just see a group of students start a student group and, and mm-hmm. they'll be able to get a little bit of funding that way. They can reserve rooms. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's kind of the 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 lowest ball you know the or the the kind of lowest barrier kind of um, uh, program and and so we've done the same thing here at Stanford we have a great advisory committee here at Stanford uh, but really we don't have a funded program and so what we what we have is is a, a group of students that are in recovery and we meet 
right now we meet online at the, uh, you know, during school we met at the Vaden Health Center uh, here on campus. And so that's kind of the, the low bar, I would say that, you know, the next tier up, uh, what you would expect is, is you know, maybe a, a little bit more than that. There might be programming, there might be a full-time person like in the counseling center that is specific to students in recovery. Uh, and then kind of the next tier up would be, you know, full-time staff member, uh, Baylor has a, a really great program that, that, that's funded, um, uh, I believe, through an endowment. And, and I, I've talked with the, the uh, kind of the program officer or the, the program director there uh, and, and just incredible uh, what, what they're able to, to do. Um, and so they, again, they, they have a drop-in center. They have this really, if I were to say like, that's, that's what you would want, that's what you would want. You would want a program with a full-time staff, a drop-in center, uh, so that you know you can you, you have someone that can answer questions. Uh, you have a place for meetings, um, and and it's really just kind of like when we think about recovery-oriented systems of care, it's that it's like a recovery cafe, but for specifically for uh, college students. Right, right. And so it sounds like it's this set of initiatives, or possibly a physical spot that provide the scaffolding for someone who is in college or applying to a college that, that they would have sort of that support system in place if they were, uh, were to need it at some point. Yes. I mean, a simple answer. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that, that's the, the whole idea is that we want to, or we want to, I say we, but you know, collegiate recovery programs in general, uh, I, I think the overarching goal is to provide services to students in recovery and whether that means starting out in recovery or sustained recovery um, or, you know, uh, interested in recovery. I think, you know, that it's this very wide kind of spectrum of, of what that may look like. Uh, and, and, you know, that's another challenge, too, is the, you know, the 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 challenge of, of kind of keeping in in. Um, you know, what we know with, with kind of research that's happening, especially in the recovery space and kind of meeting people where they're at. Um, and again, I, I don't claim to have the answers on that, but I, I think that the collegiate recovery programs that I've seen are, you know, for the most part, tr you know, trying to uh, do a really good job in, in how they, um, you know, uh, look at recovery and, and how they're, they're trying to, to meet people where they're at. No, that's huge, I think. And, and right, like you just think about like a, like a recovery community center, for instance, that lives in the community in its own space, right? And just think about the, the different levels of opportunity and intervention that take place there. Right? Like somebody who's strolling along, they can just jam in there and look for some advice for some characters on multiple different facets of their life, right? They could hit a meeting, they could ask some people about, you know, getting a job, right? Or some other type of, um, you know, intervention or, or support for, you know, funding, housing, healthcare, right? Like all those types of things. Um, and then when you layer on top of that, the stress and unique situations of being a college student, which one comes with, like there's age related things, right? But there's also just these financial and, and mental health stressors and all the things that go along with that. It seems like it'd be a, a, a perfect place to really have some early intervention like you talked about as people are kind of building their lives. I know John Kelly likes to talk about like getting building permits to build a life. Right. And this, I think this is like a permit center, right? Like you show up and you're like, I need some permits. Right. And they're like, here's how you do some stuff. Right. And they can support you along the way, whether that's like my specific recovery today in a meeting, right. Or some more long-term distal stuff, right. So some far out stuff like job after I graduate or graduate school, right. And stuff like that. Sounds like all of those things are kind of on the board, uh, depending on the place that you're looking at and the type of funding climate that exists in that institution for that program that's a, and what they've made available for that person on that day. Yeah, and if I could put you in contact with, you know, the, the program officer at, at NIDA uh, to, to kind of explain that, I would be, I, I mean, you, you hit it right on the head. That's exactly right. I mean, <laughs> if you could make that claim to, to, to my program officer, that would be, that would be incredible. I, I mean, I, like I say, it's, it, you, you really, uh, you explained it really, really well. And I don't know that I could really uh, improve upon that um, because I, I, you know, and if you think about it, kind of like in a socio-ecological model, right? Mm -hmm. So th these interpersonal kind of, you know, individual uh, outcomes or individual things that are important, and then kind of this interpersonal kind of thing. And then you start talking about like school level uh, importance uh, as well. And then, 
like kind of the broader community, right? Each level you go out there, there are different things that are going to be uh, important and, and different. And, and from my perspective, there's going to be different things that, that we'll want to, to research to, to have a really good idea of, of what's working and what's not working. I mean, there's been a couple of states at this point. I know that um, Utah was successful where I just came from in Washington. They just got uh, half a million dollars to, to expand collegiate recovery programs in, in their last biennium. So, and I think South Carolina or North Carolina had some, some state funding. So there are actually states that are getting behind this as well. It's not just all philanthropic funding. And I think that, you know, understanding that and, and, and really, you know, providing evidence, because one thing that I definitely know, I, like I say, I just did the scoping review, the, the most important, the most compelling piece of evidence that I can give after doing this scoping review is that there is just so much that we don't understand about collegiate recovery programs. I mean, I found 54 articles that, that had reported on that, on, on at least some kind of statistic. And so when we think about, you know, uh, the recovery phase of any other disease and you were to think about it with you know, college students, I mean, the, the, the literature would be robust and you'd see thousands of, 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 of articles, but, you know, for some reason with, with collegiate recovery, we just really, and, 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 you know, substance use disorder recovery for college students, we just don't see a whole lot of uh, compelling evidence. And, 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 and uh, like I say, one NIH funded study, which is really, uh, I mean, it's a sad state of, of, of affairs. Why so, do you think that is that, um, that this particular area has had less attention? I think there's obviously a lot of stigma as it surrounds, yeah. and especially on college campuses. I mean, you know, the, the these these larger public universities, and again, I'm I, I, there, there's no research to back this up whatsoever right. that, that I know of. But I think that these large public universities, I think the the most frustrating thing for me to hear when I'm talking about collegiate recovery programming with a college administrator is when they say, "Well, you need to show me that there's the students on campus need this." And, and to me, that is a college administrator that doesn't understand the, the community that they come from, the community that they're, they're dealing with, because, you know, substance use disorder is a, is a, we all know this, right? We know substance use disorder is affecting every single community in this, in this country. And so if you're, if you don't believe that you're training everyone on your, on your campus um, to understand substance use disorder, uh, then, then you're really doing a disservice to your to your mm. community and to the to the university. And so I always try and turn that backwards, right? Reverse that 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 line of questioning and, and saying that you know what are you doing to recruit students? We know these p individuals uh, exist and they exist everywhere. What are you doing to recruit students that are in recovery? Right? We've done a great job. I think colleges have done a great job in you know bringing in the lived experience of you know, uh, and creating research centers around uh, women and, and, and around uh, LGBTQ communities. And they've really um, uh, created just robust research programs uh, because they brought in, you know, people with these, these lived experiences. And so I think it's just as important to, um, to be recruiting and to be bringing in people with lived experience in the, in, in, you know, with, with substance use disorder and, and training those professionals to go out. And, and again, you know, I think that, you know, the stigma just exists on these college campuses, the drinking culture sometimes out, think outweighs the, the importance of doing what's right. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I could probably talk for days on this, but right. uh, I think it needs a. We need to be really rethinking, um, you know, what how we're in, envisioning our our communities, what community is, and um, really, uh, if you don't have people in in the classrooms and in the labs that have lived experience with with uh, substance use disorder, uh, I, I think that, you know, you're, you're just doing a disservice to the entire university because people, those students go back to their communities and they don't think substance use disorder uh, exists because it was never brought up in their, in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's even, you know, in order to bring down that stigma, that's why another reason I think that, that collegiate recovery programs are, are, are so important on college campus. Right. No, I agree, I completely agree. And so I've known you've taken some of your stuff all the way to, to, to the state house and, and the policy space. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience there and what that what that's like. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before I do that, though, I do just want to uh, capitalize on on something that was brought up uh, when when Seema and Susan were on the show, and they talked about the APA really and Division Fifty really kind of taking this uh, extra effort to to make sure that's a priority to um, you know enhance and research um, that is done by um, people kind of with with lived experience, and and so um, I know that that uh, you know. I, I can just kind of speak from my my personal background, right? So I don't come from a neighborhood that was that was overly policed, right? That's just not my 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 background. I, I come from kind of like a white middle class neighborhood, and so you know I think that I, I I'm hoping that you know that people out there that are hearing this, you know, if there are people that kind of have that lived experience and they're and they're especially thinking about careers in in addiction science, I mean, um, I, I I hope that. Uh, that that you will definitely. I mean, that's the idea, right? I would love to to eventually get to a point where I have my own lab, and 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 one day I can can you know hopefully recruit people that that have incarceration histories and and have kind of these these lived experiences. And so um, I, again, I just want to kind of reiterate that you know APA Division Fifty is is making this kind of commitment, and and you know I hope that that uh, we can seize this moment to really. Uh, get individuals with with some of these important lived experiences into research uh, because we know that it it, it provides a, a really uh, important perspective uh, and 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 you know having being able to to uh, especially kind of talk to to individuals uh, with that perspective uh, in in the work that you do in your research is just so so important and so just wanted to get that out and and that really just kind of piggybacks right into the uh, kind of the the some of the work that I've done as far as um, policy work. And, and um, so I, I went to a conference a couple of years ago and um, I, I, I was looking through the conference schedule. I know that, you know, everyone's probably had that experience, right? Where you're kind of flipping through and there was a, there was a, there was a scheduled presentation. It was a panel presentation and it was called uh, fair chances in higher education. And so I kind of had it marked on my thing that I wanted to go and learn about, you know, fair chances. I'd heard about fair chances in employment and ban the box and stuff like that. And so I went to this conference and um, I ended up meeting some lifelong friends in there, um, uh, Stanley Andres and Sarita Street Martin and um, uh, Annie Friedis. And they told me about how they had passed ban the box in higher education in their states of Louisiana and Maryland. And so I had this crazy idea that maybe I could go back to my own state at the time, Washington, uh, and, and get involved in policy work around um, a, a ban the box bill in, in Washington state. And Noel, and so, for, for those listeners who don't know, can you briefly describe what, what ban the box is? Yes, absolutely. Um, so when we talk about ban the box, I, I really actually like the, the term uh, fair chances a little bit better. I think it's a little bit more encompassing of what it actually does. Um, but in this politicized world, you know, people kind of like to, to call things different things. So, um, so, but basically ban the box or fair chances, um, you, you have it in, in three different areas, right? And so you have it in housing, you have it in employment, and then you have it, I would say actually there may even be a fourth, right? I, but I think the other two are really kind of, uh, uh, can almost be combined, but you have it in, in higher education and then connected to that, you have it in uh, licensure or you know getting licensed uh, for, for different kinds of, of jobs in, in different areas, right? So they all kind of work together, but they're all separate, especially in, in the policy world. And so what that does is when we talk about fair chances is it removes the box from the application that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony or do you have a criminal history? And so, you know, in the, in, in the higher ed world, um, you know, it, the research is really on our side in that, you know, there is no, um, there is no research out there that, that, states or, or that shows that, that there's any public safety benefit whatsoever to having that criminal history question on a college application. It doesn't reduce college crime. It doesn't reduce crime among its own students or it, it just doesn't have any effect on, on crime. And, and what we found or what the literature shows is that it, the question itself is actually discriminatory. Mm -hmm. So there's a study that was done out of the state university system of New York, and, and they had the question, they looked at all 3000 people that checked the box, and then they looked to see if the individuals went on to finish the application. And 
two thirds did not go on to finish the application. But wow. when they looked at their actual record of how many people they didn't let in down the road for uh, criminal history, uh, was only eight percent. So basically, it had it show, was showing that that fifth, over fifty percent of these individuals didn't go on to finish the application and have no idea whether they would have gotten in or not. And that so question the, alone is enough to stop them from even applying. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So, wow. so the question itself is discriminatory. And, and then we know, you know, just based on the literature, how these affect definitely black and brown communities way more than they, they yeah. affect white communities. And so, uh, it, like I say, there, there really is no reason when we talk about it on college applications, other than, you know, as a, um, well, I, I won't even get into that, but there really is no reason to have it on college applications. It doesn't keep students any safer. And so um, it keeps, it keeps uh, important communities out Right. Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> from an optics perspective, there are definitely, you know, I've talked to lawmakers that that are absolutely opposed to it for for, di for differing reasons. I, I won't really get into that. But, you know, the research is definitely on our side. And so having, yeah. you know, knowing that um, I, I got involved and started talking to uh, some some lawmakers in, in Washington state and found a, a receptive ear, Senator Saldana in, in Washington, who who was uh, very open to introducing this legislation. Uh, and then, you know, like I say, at the time, we just had this really perfect storm of uh, formerly incarcerated. We had someone in, in Washington state that had just been, Tara Simmons, who had just been um, denied taking the bar exam, even though she had finished law school because of her criminal history. And so she mm. sued the bar and won. Now she's running for state, you know, state office. So we had this really great group of, of formerly incarcerated scholars and advocates. And so, you know, long story short, we were able to 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 get that uh, that uh, bill passed in that first year, and then moving here to California, got involved with a a group here called Root and Rebound, uh, and and uh, Project Rebound here in California was able to to aid in the um, most recent state to to pass this legislation, which is here in California. Uh, removing the criminal history box from from all college applications, and so there's five states that have done it at this point. And and really, what I I love about this work is that you know I know that it was almost like a drug, right? Going through that process in Washington State and kind of I I mean I flunked civics, like I, I you know, political <laughs> science, like I just was not I, I didn't really understand it at all. Now I have a much better understanding, but that that you know having that experience and testifying. Uh, in, in front of those those committees and and advocating on that bill and and the, and the relationships that you're actually able to make with lawmakers too that's another thing you know uh, Susan and and Seema talked about talking with uh, Lauren Davis I mean Lauren Davis is doing incredible incredible work in the in the state office and in, in, in the state of Washington you know the work that she did with them is just a small piece of the work that she's done to really advocate she was she was the one that helped us get past the the uh, collegiate recovery uh, funding program as well and so so those those connections that you make are really kind of lifelong connections and um, you know you're, you're able to kind of uh, have those relationships kind of moving forward. And so I've really just made an effort to, or made a concerted effort to um, try and, and work with people in other states uh, to, to try and have that, that experience as well. Se second episode in a row where we've had someone come from, from Washington state um, talking about the effect they're having on policy. So I think we can all take a lesson from, uh, from, from any, I guess, professionals coming out of Washington state. You're really making a huge difference for the people who live in that state um, and obviously carrying it over to California as well. Um, but the other thing is it sounds like some of these programs are, are sort of soaked in this idea of like, um, well, in some ways, like the moral model of addiction and maybe the medical model, you, you could say. But uh, when you talk about like prison, this sort of punishment versus rehabilitation uh, model as well, like this idea that someone who um, is trying to apply to college who has lived experience um, uh, uh, in, in prison um, not being able to move forward because the assumption is that they, they're going to do it again, right? It's going to happen again. They're going to somehow cause problems on campus. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, uh, I mean, you, you really kind of have taken the words right out of a lot of lawmakers that I've, that I've met with. Um, 
you know, my experience in, in prison, and again, this, this is probably different for, for every person that experiences uh, prison. I worked in the school, so I was around a lot of people that were, you know, maybe trying to achieve. But, you know, my experience in prison is, and we know this from the literature, right, almost 60% of individuals in prison have substance use disorder. You know, these are, for the most part, they're individuals that are dying for a second chance. And um, I know that was the case with me, but in a lot of cases, I mean, people from, you know, over-policed communities, they were really kind of dying for a first chance. I mean, they're really, uh, have never really had a first chance because of the communities that, were, that they were really brought up in. And I didn't realize that until I was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in that, um, you, you know, just kind of made aware of that. And so really, uh, and to me, college and prison programs, th there is no better investment than a community can make than, than that. I mean, because you're, you're taking an individual that, that is, you know, trying to better the life and uh, really showing them that you care about them. And for me, it was, it was life changing. I mean, I'll never forget. I mean, I broke down crying one, you know, one day when I was in first two weeks of, of community college. And, you know, someone told me in that moment, one of my professors told me, you know, you have the ability to go to grad school if you want to. And, you know, she had no idea my background and uh, Kaylin Stevens, if you're out there, like, I mean, honestly, she, she, she changed my life in that moment. And, um, it's, it's, it, like I say, it's a lot of people to me that there are a lot more people, um, that are, are really kind of looking for a second chance coming out of prison than there are, than there are looking to, to go back and commit crime. Yeah. I think if there's so many, like just outstanding individuals, just looking for one of these chances and that, that we're creating barriers for them that get in the way, um, when really what we should be doing is, is, is creating things that facilitate their growth and experience and allow them to contribute to our communities in ways that are incredibly meaningful um, as you're doing here and, and as, as many others uh, before and after you will. Um, I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about some of the take home messages of, of all of this work that you've done. Uh, so if you, had to, if you had to kind of break down all the work that you've done, your research your, and, your, and your personal experience, um, and give us a take-home message for individuals who are in recovery, what would you say? And maybe people who um, are, are incarcerated or, or formerly incarcerated as well. Um, so, uh, I mean, the first thing that I, I would say is that, you know, the kind of a, a separate policy issue is um, reinstoring Pell Grants to people that are incarcerated. I mean, I think that that is one step that we could definitely take and um, improve so many people's lives. I mean, that was part of the 1994 crime bill um, that, you know, removing Pell Grants for people in prison it is so harmful. And so, you know, if we, if we could take and remove that um, barrier would be huge for, for people in prison and it would allow some of these um, more robust universities to go in and, and offer programming uh, at, at mm -hmm. college and prison programs. So that's definitely one thing that I would say Another thing that I would definitely say, you know, and this is to anyone that, that's kind of, um, you know, thinking about getting into higher education uh, with a, a criminal justice history or, you know, anyone in recovery thinking about kind of getting into to education or higher education or, or just kind of succeeding in general. Um, I think something that really broke my heart at the very beginning, you know, it, and it's happened a couple of different times, um, maybe when I got accepted to grad school and then when I came here, I think you know, some of the biggest critics that I had uh, were people from my own community. So people that were formerly incarcerated and um, it hurt. I mean, it really, really hurt to, to have people uh, criticize me. Um, and so I, I realized, you know, back then that, that you really have to straight, stay true to yourself, stay true to the work, stay true to, to my, uh, to what I'm good at, right? I'm, I, I feel like I was kind of given these natural talents for statistical modeling and, and understanding things. Um, because that's just the way my brain, my brain works. And as long as I stay true to that and, and true to the, to the research, um, everything else will, will kind of work itself out. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, unfortunately you, you, um, you lose friends that are, that were really important to you. And, and, you know, sometimes it's a good thing, but sometimes it really, really hurts your feelings, uh, as well. The other thing that I always tell, and, and this is, I don't know if it's so much for people in recovery, but I know for me, like, uh, I, the thing I didn't realize about grad school is that uh, it's the 
the process of feedback, right? I took everything so personal and, and didn't realize that, you know, my mentors, when they were giving me feedback on a paper or something like that, I, I just thought it was straight criticism. And so being able to really take a deep breath and, and you know, I don't know if anyone needs to hear that, but my gosh, like I uh, needed to hear that from, from someone early on in, in grad school because yeah. I was just so, I didn't even want to send my papers to senior authors because I just thought, well, they're just going to criticize them anyway. And I, I can't, my, my precious little, you know, ego can't handle that. And so just understanding that that is so much part of the process. And, you know, I, I think my K award, I, I was at 58 drafts of it by the time it was done. And so, you know, this idea that, 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 you know, you're not going to, to have something perfect the, the first time that was really hard for me to get used to. Yeah. Uh, so, so that would definitely be a, a strong yeah. suggestion. I think if all of us are honest, that's something we all <laughs> struggle with uh, or have struggled with at least at, at some point in, in our trajectory, but also in life, you know, just um, any job you go into being criticized. And um, I think that's great, uh, great advice. Um, it's all about growth. Um, any take home messages for practitioners? Um, I, I think that uh, know your strengths. I, I, and I knew right away in my, uh, you know, early on, I, I know I, I, I didn't quite understand my strengths and, and weaknesses. Luckily, I kind of learned them along the way. Uh, and I was able to kind of over, you know, compensate for it in, in, in certain areas. Um, and, and again, you know, if you're, you're, you're dealing with someone in, you know, with substance use disorder, I think what I didn't re quite realize at the time was that, you know, this is a lifelong journey that this person is going on. I wanted everyone to get, re get fixed right in that moment. And if they didn't, I was a failure as a, as a, um, you know, as a therapist and, you know, realizing that, that that's just not the way it the, yeah. the, that's just not the way it works. And, and, you know, for most individuals with substance use disorder, uh, there are going to be rocky roads and there's going to be up and downs and, and, um, you know, having this expectation that everyone is going to get ready, you know, get fixed uh, right away and, and, and be perfect, you know, when they're done with your group. Uh, for me, again, that was a, that was hard to, to, to kind of get used to. And so uh, I know we've talked a lot about this one, but if there's policymakers who are listening, what, what do you think they should know? For sure. Like I said, I've already said those two things. If, if I could do two things, right, it would be um, uh, ban the box in higher education. I mean, it just creates a barrier that doesn't need to be there. Um, and uh, it really limits the um, earnings growth potential of, of someone uh, that, that is coming out of, out of prison. I see a lot of states investing, investing, investing into community colleges uh, in state prisons. Uh, yet, you know, if you have this box that doesn't allow them to transfer to a, a four-year school, to me, that's just a, a waste of money that, that, you know, you're not allowing uh, people to, to really yeah. kind of meet their true selves uh, or to, you know, to, to um, yeah, meet the expectations maybe of the, of, that they even have of themselves. Uh, so, so that would be one policy thing that I would, I would advise everyone to, to kind of look at. Uh, and then um, the, uh, the, the restoration of Pell Grant for, for students that are incarcerated, so, so important. And then lastly, just kind of the, the underfunding in general when we think about the, you know, recovery oriented systems of care and, you know, how we fund, I mean, if this was any other disease, right, there would be so much funding for the recovery. If we think about um, cancer, you know, there's the, the recovery phase is, is probably the most important phase. I mean, that, that's where you really take all of those things that have been uh, achieved during, you know, treatment and, 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 and it really, is so important and so well funded, but for some reason in collegiate recovery or in recovery in general, um, it just seems to, and I don't know if that's because, you know, AA has kind of picked up the slack for years and years and years or, or what has really been thought or if it's stigma, uh, but we really need to be thinking and, and putting uh, the, the funding for uh, reco the recovery phase of treatment in the, the disease of addiction. We need to get, be getting that more in line uh, with other um, diseases as well, whether that's HIV or cancer, or, you know, they're, they're just very robust funding for, for both research uh, and recovery efforts um, for, for those, those diseases. So hopefully getting more in tune there. Right. Yeah. A couple of great action items, um, which, which I can always appreciate. A couple things for, for uh, policymakers to specifically do. Um, so last final thing, 
Um, you've been really successful. Um, and you know, you're working with the great Keith Humphreys. I mean, that is a, that is success in and of itself, but, um, for, for anyone else out there who maybe is on a similar path as you or, or even um, for just anyone who's applying to graduate school or trying to look at postdocs and stuff, do you have, do you have any general advice for, for trainees out there? Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, uh, anyone that follows Keith Humphrey on, on Twitter, uh, his, his, his dad jokes and his puns are, are just as funny in person as they, as they are there. So, um, yeah, no, he is just, he's been an incredible um, mentor to work with and, um, just so understanding on, on so many different levels and, and, you know, uh, his ability to, to work with it, you know, with me is just, it's just been incredible. Um, and so, you know, that is that, that mentor relationship is, is so important, uh, first and foremost. The other thing that I would definitely say something that scared me to begin with when I started kind of my research journey is, you know, I thought that, oh, I'm only going to do qualitative research because stats really, really scared me. Um, and it, I don't know if it was because I didn't have a good background in math or, or what it was, but, um, you know, the strongest suggestion that I can get to, uh, to tell anyone is don't be afraid of stats, even if you need to take the class three or four times. I have, you know, uh, modeling classes that I have taken three or four times, and it has been the best experience the third time I took it rather than the first time I took it because I wasn't so worried about my grade. I was really uh, interested more so in understanding the, the concepts. And so, you know, my strong, strong suggestion is, is to take and involve yourself in as many statistical modern courses, machine learning, anything like that, where you can really, because those skills will make you so much more marketable as a, as a researcher. Um, and for, you know, kind of the more, more coveted positions. Um, I did my, my dissertation in latent class analysis and worked with uh, Len Burns and, and Sterling McPherson at Washington State University. And that experience, it was it was brutal, um, you know, trying to to become even a pseudo expert, right? Which I kind of consider myself. I'm definitely not an expert, but expert enough to 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 um, uh, to publish in in that area. But that was just a a great experience as I look back on it now. So so please push yourself in the area of statistics. The other thing that I would definitely say is that. Um, you know, reach out to senior scientists. I, I, I did that many times and was very surprised that I don't think I ever once had the door slammed in my face. I just would, you know, email them and say, hey, you know, maybe on your way home, could we set up a 15 minute talk? You, you be in traffic and I can kind of pick your brain about certain things. Um, it didn't matter, how, you know, who the scientist was, uh, those those email messages were always well received. I always got a return email uh, and, and people were really, you know, people love to talk about themselves. I, I, I find it and, and the research that they do. So they're really um, open to, to, to spending that, you know, 15, 20 minutes with you talking about it. And, you know, those kinds of things, they may seem insignificant at the time, but they are so important when you go to conferences and down the road and, you know, you've already talked to this person on the phone, it makes it really easy to go up and introduce yourself to them in person. And, and those little things make a huge difference down the road. And, and just to kind of piggyback on that, you know, if anyone wants to pick my brain, uh, I'm, I'm more than welcome, you know, more than happy to, to talk with people, especially people with, you know, lived experience in the, in the criminal justice system. There are so many things that I didn't understand. Like, I didn't know what GREs were. I didn't, I mean, just all this stuff that like, you know, I think that people that kind of grow up in academia or kind of grow up in that, that mind right. frame really understand that, that I didn't. And so, um, just, you know, the, the language of grad school was just so foreign to me. And so if I can offer any kind of assistance there, you know, I would uh, definitely put my, myself out there as well as, as someone to contact. Absolutely. It's kind of an, another world, another language, another, another culture. So thank you so much, Noel. Um, it's been fantastic. Learned, learned a lot um, and um, really appreciated you giving us some of your time. Yeah, thank you guys so much. It was really, really, I mean, it's cool to get to know you guys and uh, to be on this, this podcast as well. I, I really can't thank you enough. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Pleasure's ours. Thank you so yeah. much again. Next time on the Addiction Psychologist podcast, 
we're going to have Dr. Katie Wickowitz join us. Katie is the Regents Professor at the University of New Mexico, and she's going to talk to us about her recent work on non-abstinent-based recovery. Yeah, right. Uh, many of the definitions of recovery for, for many of the national institutes, for many um, treatment programs and treatment centers are abstinent-based, abstinent and um, Katie and her team have done a lot of work recently um, to sort of just look at recovery in a different way, look at other areas of functioning um, and how, how those are also very important in addition to, um, you know, just not consuming the substance. And so um, we, we think that this is probably going to have a big impact on definitions of recovery in, in the coming decades. Um, and so uh, this is going to be a really, really great conversation and um, you're, you're not going to want to miss it. And also, while I have your attention, I'd like to do a shameless plug for myself. I will be reviewing applications for uh, PhD students in the Counseling Psychology Program at Colorado State University this next cycle. So anybody listening who's interested in the intersection between emotion and substance use or improving addiction treatment outcomes for youth, I invite you to apply to work with me. Also, I want to know, I'm really interested in recruiting individuals with lived experience in recovery or mental health in general. I understand that this is traditionally considered the kiss of death in your application. So you do not have to put it in your materials if you don't like, but just know that you're safe to apply to work with me. I look forward to seeing your application. And as always, follow us on Twitter at adpsychpodcast. Um, get on the Division 50 website, check us out, check out all the other things that are going on, um, and have a good week. Indeed. Be well.